0: This is the Bible Book Club, and we're in the book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome
1: to the club! Last episode was a sad one for our man Moses, as he lost both his siblings, Miriam first and then Aaron. And then for the remainder of the journey... He will lead alone, and this must have been a great personal hardship for him. Sandwiched between the loss of his family, Moses makes a mistake, one that cost him the chance to see the promised land. It seemed like a small mistake. Another water war was brewing, and Moses got frustrated with the Israelites for their lack of trust in God's provision for food and water, and then he took it out on the rock by striking it rather than speaking instead of asking god what he wanted to do he did something himself and that's never a good thing poor moses for us either and now i can't go in the promised land like everyone else in his generation well chapter
0: 20 was true a low point for moses And there is this common pattern in life. I hope you've seen it before if you haven't watched for it, because we can learn from it. And that is this. Just before there is a victory, there is usually tension, struggle, and distraction. It's as if the enemy knows we're about to be useful to God's plan, and he tries to thwart us. He tries to pull us back into chaos in order to limit our effectiveness. Moses's low point in the last episode precedes a breakthrough for Israel in chapter 21. This chapter is a turning point in the wilderness wanderings. God's perseverance with Israel begins to pay off, and there is a glimmer of hope for God's people. Now, I want to give you a theme alert, and that is this theme that we're going to see of wrestling with the will of God. The rise and fall of Israel as a nation is symbolic of the rising and falling pattern in our own lives. When Israel obeys God's will, there is a rise. They're successful. When Israel rebels against God's will, there is a fall. We struggle with sin as Israel struggled. We have our ups and our downs, and most of our struggles with sin occur because we struggle with God's will. Can you see yourself in Israel? Do you see yourself resisting or rebelling against his will just because we don't like what he wants for us? This next story I'm calling Victory and Venom. It is the story of an obedient rise to success, followed by a rebellious fall that is fatal. So, first, the obedient rise.
1: This is Israel's first victory in Canaan over Arid, chapter 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. "'If you will deliver these people into our hands, "'we will totally destroy their cities.' "'The Lord listened to Israel's plea "'and gave the Canaanites over to them. "'They completely destroyed them and their towns, "'so the place was named Hormah.'" Erid, which is now identified as Tel-Erid, is about 20
0: miles south of Hebron. It is 38 years after Mount Sinai. The old generation of Israelites has died, and the new generation is finally ready.'" The battle is the new generation's first battle and first victory. The victory is a blatant contrast to the first time when the old generation of Israelites tried to take over the land without God at Horma. The new generation names this place Arid Horma, associating it with the other Horma where the old generation suffered defeat. They're kind of saying we've made a turnaround, like you failed, parents. <laughs> we've succeeded. Horma means destruction. And last time the destruction was theirs, now they're destroying the Canaanites. The reason for this their success this time is because they were obedient, not rebellious. The Israelites sought God before taking any action. Going forward in the Israelites' battles, they are going to be purposeful in who and how they attack, and they are only going to do that when directed by God. And if they don't do it when directed by God, they're not going to succeed. The war for the land was a holy war. The iniquity of the Canaanites had reached its full measure as Genesis 15 prophesied, and Israel was to be the instrument of the Lord's judgment to claim This sounds so barbaric to us, but we will see that on the rare occasions when Israel fails to carry out God's policy of total destruction, that the seductive patterns of Canaanite worship of foreign gods become a point of failure for the
1: Israelites. And that's why God told them, you have to wipe them out. I was wondering about that. So it's really just so that they would not have the temptation to behave the way that the other people do to to follow the false gods that they were following. Exactly. Exactly. And it's going to be a
0: problem. They're not going to follow those instructions. Uh, The long-awaited taste of victory was sweet to this new generation. But it often seems, whether in the Bible or in our own lives, that after every success, there is a test. And after every rise, there is a fall. Usually, Satan is not very creative in bringing the fall about. He uses the same old desires to tempt us like food in Israel's case the taste of victory was sweet but it is rapidly followed by the bitterness of rebellion with one victory under their belt the israelites hit the road again under god's direction but rather than penetrating canaan from the south as was the plan 38 years ago when moses sent out the 10 spies god directs the israelites to make a longer journey around edom and moab to to enter Canaan on the east side. The journey is long,
1: dusty, hot, and boring. And so the rebellious fall. Verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. What were they thinking? Well, they weren't thinking. They were rebelling.
0: Perhaps we can relate because their situation is so frustrating. This new generation has grown up in the wilderness, always waiting, daily practicing war, memorizing, Summarizing laws and rules for when they would have their own land, eating the same manna over and over, never, ever, ever having enough water. Then finally, they experience the first taste of victory. They feel the surge of adrenaline that comes from this satisfying knowledge that you can do something you've prepared your whole life to do. And then what does Moses tell you? He wants you to march miles out of the way back into the wilderness, back to the Red Sea, just because he wants to avoid Edom. Remember, Edom denied passage to Israel in chapter 20, and they are distant relatives, not Canaanites. distant relatives. It's just too much for the Israelites. With the sweet taste of victory in their mouths, they reject God's gift of manna, the bread of heaven, once again. And like many of us, when this new generation of Israelites gives vent to their emotions, it's like they become their parents. It is 38 years later. Many of these Israelite kids never even lived in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness and they're all grown up. And if they lived in Egypt, they were children when they did. They don't even probably remember it. But what they say is what they heard from their parents. They say, we would
1: have been better off staying in Egypt. What are they talking about? Well, the irony of what they're doing there is just a few verses earlier, they were boasting almost prideful that they had turned it around that they sought God and then renamed the area Hurrah Hormone, so that they could prove that they had changed, changed their ways. And then here they go back to the ways that their parents were whining and complaining.
0: It's it's, it's what we do. What attitudes have you inherited? Because when people get like frustrated and angry, we just, what comes out is maybe nothing what we mean. It's if we sound like our parents, the people grew impatient. Do you struggle with impatience? What drives you to frustration? It's really important to know what triggers us. The problem here is the will of God. And here's that theme. We just don't always like the will of God and neither do the Israelites. But really, in the end, whose will is going to win? Shouldn't Israel understand this by now? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't I? Israel is struggling with God's will, but don't we all? God said this in Genesis 4, 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That is from the Cain
1: and Abel battle. (laughs) I have that verse sitting on my desk from the first class I took of yours.
0: Oh, you're kidding. Not kidding. Well, it's so huge. It was very, it was way back there at the beginning and it still happened to them, to the Israelites today. And it still happens to us today. All right. Paul said this in Romans 7, 15. I love this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is our struggle against the will of God. We have these two natures. The one desires to be like God, but the other pulls us back. Okay, from the beginning in Genesis 4 to Paul in Romans to us today, our nature is to wrestle with the will of God. Now, I wanted to bring up this Bob Newhart clip. Have you ever seen this? It's hilarious. <laughs> so you could Google it. Just literally go to YouTube and put in Bob Newhart, stop it, because this woman comes in to see him, and she starts talking about like all these phobias he ha- she has, and he goes, okay, well, this isn't going to cost you very much, like $5, just you can pay cash, because I'm going to give you two two words to remember two words. And she pulls out a notebook. He goes, no, you don't need a notebook. It's just two words. And she goes, okay, I'm ready. And he goes, stop it. <laughs> and she goes, but I can't. I have this vision of me, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, stop it. And this is what I want to say to myself when I struggle against the will of stop God. It's Just stop, stop it. it.
1: Just stop
0: it. It would be so much easier if I would just stop it. Okay. Israel's
1: rebellious fall is fatal. Verse six, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The Lord's response, again, may seem harsh, but this manna that
0: they've been given for how many years, 38, 40 years now, is really the bread of heaven. And the fact that it is only one of three things placed in the Ark of the Covenant, along with Aaron's blooming staff and the stone tablets is a glaring hint to us that this bread was precious. It is, in fact, symbolic of Jesus himself. And I would love to take you down that rabbit trail because it's amazing. It's actually going to get into Ruth. We're going to love this symbolism. But this manna is a daily physical sign of God's care for them and his presence with them. And they are rejecting his provision And, in effect, him. And because it symbolizes Jesus Christ, his son. Now, God responds to their desire to have stayed in Egypt with a plague similar to the plagues he used in Egypt. In other words, if you're going to whine about staying in Egypt, you're going to
1: feel the pain of Egypt. Yeah, that does sound brutal. Yeah. Verse seven, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Okay, this sounds like these what, three two three sentences it
0: sounds so not like a big deal, but think about it. Chaos is broken breaking out in this camp of 2 million because these snakes are just slithering. I mean they're intense. There's nowhere to go and shut the door. They're they're and they're biting the people and the people are in pain and it actually describes the word um as the bites being fiery. Like fiery serpents is another translation for snakes and it's because they said the venom probably burned. So it was not it was it was a mess and poor Moses is all alone, you know. He doesn't even have his brother and sister anymore. The Lord's response to this chaos is a visual anti-venom. This generation shows some promise of change here because they actually do confess their sin, which mm-hmm. is great. Yep,
1: I but, sinned against the Lord and then they ask him to intercede. Exactly, They so they turn really quick. So Which is a good example for us of something that we can do if we catch ourselves. Stop it. Exactly, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. God's answer, however, is really
0: unusual. It just doesn't make sense because God had forbidden Israel from making images of animals to avoid the dangers of idolatry. On top of it, in the Bible, the snake or serpent is associated with the evil one. Satan's first appearance in Genesis 3 is as a serpent. Moses must have done a double take like, God, did I hear you right on this? You want me to make a, a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and hold it up high?
1: Like we got in big
0: trouble for yeah. that cow exactly. Yeah, golden cow, so. golden cow. We're golden dropping cow. down a brown bronze. Yeah, it's now it's not even as precious. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But Moses did not have time to ask questions because people were dying. Now God's answer is fitting. So track with me because this was really cool for me to learn. Uh, there's a couple really cool parallels here. The first, the people had said that God's bread was detestable. So God sent them a plague of something truly detestable to them, snakes. Snakes were unclean animals. They were a representative of Satan. So he says, oh, you think my bread is detestable? I'm going to send you something something that's that's detestable. detestable. (laughs) Then he commanded Moses to make an image of that detestable snake. So now they're being chased by snakes. In the people's, panic and then then to be healed they have to look at a snake in the people's panic it must have seemed so counterintuitive to look at a snake when you're being chased by snakes like you you wouldn't want to They must have had to steal themselves, overriding their instinct. And that is exactly what God is wanting them to do. Override your own human desires for food, water, everything else, and trust God for healing, hope, and yes, even food and water. So he's trying to train them against... What they always go to, their base instincts. It is also really fitting, this whole snake thing, because the snake was a reminder of the fall and of sin. To confront the bronze snake was like having to confront their own sin. Sin was a result of the fall when their predecessors, Adam and Eve, succumbed to the serpent's temptation. Adam and Eve rebelled and desired the fruit from the other tree, just as the Israelites rebelled and wanted more than just manna. By forcing the Israelites to look at the bronze snake, it was like they had to look in the mirror and see the reflection. Of the rebellious serpent in themselves because they were desiring something against God's will, just like Adam and Eve. The pain of the snake bite was also a reminder that the consequence of sin is death. So, just like Adam and Eve took what they didn't want, they are whining for food that God has not given them. And so they're being chased by the snake, literally and figuratively, you know, by their own temptations and also by this plague. So, to look at the snake, it's like looking in the mirror going, yeah, that serpent, he lives in me. I'm an idiot. Now, in the New Testament, there is both a bread and a snake association to Jesus. The bread, as we all know, you've heard this before, is symbolic of Jesus. John six forty eight says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So Jesus is associating himself as a better manna. Now, the bronze snake is also symbolic of Jesus. John 3.14 says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus was saying that he was the ultimate antidote to the venom of death that results from sin. By looking up at Christ lifted on the cross, we see the horror of our sin nailed to the cross in him and we are saved. In Israel's story, to be saved from the venom, they had to look at the bronze snake. In our story, To be saved from sin, we have to look at Jesus on the wooden cross.
1: Well, the question is, what are you succumbing to? What kind of temptation is Satan uh, putting in your way that you need to look up at Jesus for? And you need, you can, it's okay to put a very visual reminder. It doesn't have to be obviously not a snake. We don't have to do that anymore. We can put a visual reminder on our desk. Like I have the picture of what is it the 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 verse you said yeah yeah like i have the verse up on Mm -hmm. my desk it could be something simple that nobody else knows what it is except for you but when you look at it you are reminded so where in your life is god calling you or convicting you that you need to put up a symbol that will help you look to him it's like if if the
0: snake is nipping at your heels with temptation then the cross is the anti-venom. You got to look good. up. That's a good metaphor. Go Look up at God. Well, with another rebellion and another recovery behind them, the Israelites are back on the path to victory. This section has three poems or songs. The recording of these poems points to a shift in the tone from the darker events of the last chapter to another rise of
1: hope, obedience, and yes, success for the Israelites. Verse 10. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they sent out from Oboth and camped in. Abrim in the wilderness that faces Moab toward the sunrise. From there, they moved on and camped in Zered Valley. They set out from there and camped alongside Arnon, which is in the wilderness, extending into the Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. That is why the book of the wars of the Lord says, Zahav and Zufa and the ravines, the Aaron and the slopes of the ravines that led to the settlement of Ar yeah and lie along the border of Moab. This first
0: song is a song of places. And the first fragment of the song is just a list of the places which could have been used to help the people memorize the places and locations they had been. So remember, they learned everything from memorization. They didn't really have books. So, you know, if they had a war, they would write a song about it, and they'd sing that to their children. And if they visited places, they they this was a song of places. They made up a song about it so they could remember. Now, the book of the wars of the Lord is a book that has never been found, but we can assume that it was a collection of songs of war in praise of God. The second song is called the song of the well.
1: Verse 16. From there, they continued on to beer the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up a well, sing about it, about the well that the princes dug. The nobles of the people sank. The nobles with scepters and staffs. The water supply has been a constant concern on this journey and a
0: great source of grumbling and sin for the Israelites. Beer means well in Hebrew. God gathered the people to the right place to find water, and the people dug a well there. This example of the cooperation between God and the people in developing this source of water is a cause for celebration. They worked together, and they were obedient, and it happened at a great way instead of somebody hitting the rock and getting in trouble. This new source of water provided without them rebelling about it produces praise in the form of a song. This is only the second time recorded that the Israelites have sang a song of joy. The first was Miriam and Moses' song after the defeat at the Red Sea. We have a sense from this that our people are finally in a good place. They are contentedly eating manna again. They are well watered with the well they dug themselves after God showed them where it was— and they are on the move. It is time for a few more victories. This is the story of the defeat of Sion and Og. These two vi- victories are celebrated even today as the beginning of the promised land takeover. The first victory at Arad was more an act of self-defense and not acts actually like supposed to be part of their promised land. Sion and Og were formidable countries located in the area of Transjordan. So they're still on the east side of the Jordan. We haven't crossed the Jordan yet and gotten to the heart of the promised land. That's going to happen in Joshua. But there, there was territory on the east of the Jordan and that's what they're going to take over right now.
1: Then they went out from the wilderness to Matanah, from Matanah to Nathaniel, from Nathaniel to Bemoth, and from Bemoth to the valley in Moab, where the top of the Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside in any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through the territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok but only as far as the Amorites, because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as Arnon. The Amorites
0: are not descendants of Abraham as the Edomites were, so they can attack them. However, the Israelites request passage through the land and are denied. So they're going to attack because they didn't let them through. They were trying to get to the Jordan, I think. Heshbon was where the king of Sion lived. It had belonged, Heshbon had belonged to the king of Moab until the Amorites took it over by defeating them. This is important for our next story in the next episode, where the king of Moab is going to freak out because the Amorites defeated the Moabites and the Israelites defeated the Amorites. Therefore, the Moabites do not stand a chance against the Israelites. The victory here at Zion produces another song. The third song is called the Taunt Song of Heshbon. The taunt song was originally an Amorite song celebrating their earlier victory over Moab. So actually, it's thought that the Amorites wrote this song and sang it taunting Moab about their victory. And then the Israelites now have adopted it and are taunting Heshbon about it. That's a lot of who's on first. I know. Taunt songs were regularly used to recall war victories. In ancient cultures, taunt songs were not just a reflection of the armies, but of the strength of the gods they worshipped. So by singing the taunt song, they were kind of worshipping their god, saying, look what you did. Yeah, you're so great. You're so great. I want to do that cheer. <laughs> It was a victory of the, this one was a victory of the God of Israel over the God of the Amorites and over the God of Moab because the Amorites had defeated the
1: Moabs first. So these were kind of like early worship songs? Yeah, I think they're worship songs
0: celebrating, they're praise praise songs celebrating, yeah, look what we did with our God, our God's
1: better than your God. And then it also helped them remember. Exactly, because the kids sing it. Can't you see all those kids taunting the other kids? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it was a thing. Verse 27. That is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, ablaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's Heights. Woe to you, Moab, you are destroyed, people of Chemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Hashbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nopah, which extends to Midba. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road toward Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in the battle of Idray. The Lord said to Moses, do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land.
0: So in the middle of that taunt, Uh, Heather read, Woe to you, Moab. You are destroyed, people of Chemosh. Chemosh was the god of the Amorites. So they're kind of like throwing some shade on him too. Moses sets the pattern for war here that we talked about in the beginning of this episode that will continue throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites do not or should not attack without permission from God. With these two victories, Sion and Og, Israel possessed the area of the Transjordan from the region of Moab in the south to the heights of Bashan in the vicinity of Mount Hermon, east of the Sea of Galilee. And I will put Matt, a map in the show notes about that if you really want to because once you really start reading this and you see their travels you see okay yeah they went around Edom which is way in the south and then Moab which is kind of right next to the Dead Sea and then above it was where the Amorites were and so they came in on the east side of the Canaan there right where the Amorites were and they're trying to approach the Jordan River Okay, this moment, this time of victory must have been a sweet spot for our hero, Moses. There is new life in these people. They are still sinners at heart, but they are back on the path that God had intended for them 40 years ago. They are leaving that 40-year time and that wilderness sand behind them. Imagine what a big deal this was for them. And this moment was the place, the time that God had promised them 400 years ago. Remember, their lives for generations have been hanging on a promise to Abraham for 400 years. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham in a dream this, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, "'Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, "'and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there.' but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Jurgishites, and Jebusites. Well, the time of the Canaanites has come and the Amorites have been defeated. The dream was finally coming true, one victory at a time.
1: What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible book club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club." club.